Welcome to the Design Exec Club podcast, featuring global design executives discussing how to solve and accelerate to a better future with the design lens. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder and chair of the Driven by Design Awards. Over the last 18 months, I've had the privilege to interview a wide range of design leaders. We've re-edited and tweaked the audio and republished these for you to learn, be inspired and understand how others are getting to the future faster and working to create a better future. We are so lucky. We've got Matteo Bologna in the room with us. Hi, Matteo. Hello, hello. So, Matteo... Was you... that, hold on. Was that pronunciation right? I don't know. Are you guys doing this podcast also spelled, uh, I mean, spoken in real English? <laughs> so I can... I'm guessing by that reply, no. <laughs> so I can also answer to the questions. Why don't you... So if I understand the questions. So are you going in the, the differences between Australian English and the Italian American English that you mess up. You're trying to be offensive? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you pronounce your name? Matteo Bologna. Oh, it sounds so much better. Yes. <laughs> I got to introduce you to my mate, Matteo Bologna. Bologna. <laughs> Bologna. Okay, so, so we've got past our intros. So joining me is Matteo Bologna. Matteo, welcome. Thank you for having me here, Mark. <laughs> Have we got a... An issue here. Am I not pronouncing your name the way you'd like it to be pronounced? Um, I don't know, Marco. What do you think about that? Well, I've always known you as Matteo, but... It's Matteo with a tail. Matteo. It sounds better from him. Yes. I know, but, but that's because he's cool and suave and I'm just an Australian who's got no class or character. You yeah. summarised it. I'm so glad that Italians have this... Um, this persona that just goes. Now, listeners, we, uh, part of the reason why we're indulging what might seem to be, you know, puerile and not important is because I think when we go look at type, it's actually it's all of the minutia of a font and the glyphs, the weights. That's really what the type world is about, isn't it? And some people might walk past that and think it's not important, but for you, Matteo, as being one of the world's leading type designers, that's what's important to you. Uh, yes, um, it's kind of like an obsession. I kind of look at the world uh, through the space in between letters. Like we've been asking people about their journey to where they are now as well. Is that something that started as a, at a young age for you? Like how did you how did you say one day when I grow up I want to be a typographer? So Kirsten, I, the question you asked Matteo about where did he start. I do recommend what we're going to do is we're going to put a link in so that people can listen to the amazing interview that Debbie Millman went and did with yeah, you. Yeah, just go straight there. <laughs> we, we go back to the origin story there. And, you know, it's a little bit like a book that's already been written. Basically, Matteo got a computer when he was a young kid. Well, maybe not that young. And he then hacked away and tried to go make something decent. Somehow stumbled through life, got a bit of formal education, but then stumbled through life and just became one of the most awesome typographers in the, in the world. Was that a good that summary of your life story? Perfect. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so Matai, so that's the nice part of history of, of, of where you've been. But I want to spend some time here where we go and explore the chaos that was you starting MUCA, getting some of the most amazing clients that are out there and now this journey that you're on, which is actually a more structured strategy, building up evidence that is going to help your clients. But let's go all the way back to the beginning where I think in, in the early days of Moco, there might have just been a little bit like young dating where 
client said, we need a logo, we need something done for us, and you went and just, you gave them something that blew them away. Uh, yeah, so we gave them a lot of logos, and then they had to choose them, which is like the most stupid thing that you can do as a designer. Well, just give too much choice to your mm, customers. So... But there were, you've had some serial customers who have had multiple restaurants, you know, and they've asked you to come back and, and do work for them. So they must like what you've done for them. Um, yes, or I was cheap. So there's also the balance of you know, doing something that it's good and it's affordable and then they come again and then you maybe the next time you do better stuff because you get better by doing a lot. So I know I know that you had a frequency side there which gave you the mastery that but that work that you did for these restaurants is still current. It's still what they're using, isn't it? Uh, yes. yes. So it must have been good because it's endured, not just so you you've reflected on the remuneration for you, which I, I can understand because we all think we sell our work too cheap. But it's great work and it's but, been lauded and respected. But what's interesting here, and, and we've been having this conversation with a number of design leaders around how what's how did they transition to the boardroom and the executive and listen, helping that group understand the value of design. Now, what's interesting, though, is a lot of these leaders have talked about the journey or the stages and you've just meant what you've discussed there is a mastery of the craft right you've you've basically done the craft you've got people engaged in the value of your craft how then did you transition or what was the realization that we're producing a lot of logos okay this isn't going to what i want to do for the rest of my career in this um with my company how did you go to the next stage um i think it was thanks to my former business partner that she was uh, looking at the way we were doing things and she said you guys are crazy because uh, we um i mean my approach was like okay kill the client with as many proposals as they want and there's going to be one that they like which was a really the wrong approach because it was based on the fact that i like to do a lot of stuff i mean like you know and showing most of the stuff to the client. And then we realized that, again, it's very easy to go to a client and say, I like this, and the client says, no, I like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, figure out, figuring out a way to uh, sell things so that they have a, have a real reason to exist, we then decided to add the strategic part to our business, which is exactly what we were doing before but now we do it in a more mm, less chaotic way and people probably pay for it <laughs> yes right. so, so you commercialize that but, strategy uh, it's not just but, but the truth is it benefits everyone it benefits the designers it benefits us uh, because by creating these workshops and these uh, uh, strategies, we define the rules of the game. Yeah. The game is defined. I know that if I wake up in the morning and I like pink and I come to you and I show you this new pink logo and say, no, I like green. Why did you show me this? This will never happen. You know exactly what I'm going to show you because we spent two months before a first line has been drawn on a piece of paper. 
discussing about the project. Well, this is interesting, right, because what you've just described there is how do you get clients to value outcomes versus the outputs? So they could have lots of outputs there and see lots of creativity and things. But you've kind of gone through this education where you've said, hey, we're going to invest this amount of time so I understand where you're going strategically and what you're doing. But a lot of clients on this education pendulum don't get that. How do you get them to value that investment? I mean, certain clients ask for this from the beginning. Others don't even know what the process is. It depends on the size of the client. If you work with a big corporation, they know the rules of the game and they know how to play them. Other clients that are small, like if someone is opening a new line of coffee or another, yes, or another restaurant, sometimes they're like chefs. They don't know much about branding. Maybe it's their first restaurant. And so you have to do a job that takes them through the journey from the beginning to the end. And from the first meeting, you have to build trust. Make sure that they like you, which sometimes doesn't happen, so they leave. Um, and, um, and then they like the process. And I have to say that for us, um, whenever we do this, um, uh, these strate strategies, sessions, these workshops, it's amazing when the workshop is finished and you have all these post-its on the wall and then you see usually a group of well, the, the C-suite or the group of the investors, whatever, sometimes, you know, wife and husband who open the restaurant, depends on the size of the clients that we're dealing with. You see their face happy because we create this, uh, um, we help them to discuss about their issues, their what they think about the future of their company, and we go with very simple questions then they have to answer. Sometimes questions are very, very simple that should be so obvious that you can write them in a second, and it takes them five minutes to do it, and then two or three people have different answers, and so that's, it really helps them to discuss about it, find a common ground, communicate it to us. And for us, that becomes the brief. And, it, and it's amazing in that process. It's, they bring the pieces of the jigsaw to the table. And as we're asking those questions, we're just helping to turn the pieces of the jigsaw around and then they see how they start to fit together or we find that there's a piece that's missing and we have to go talk about that. But it's not that you've got all the answers. It's they have to bring their pieces of the jigsaw to the table so that you can help help them work through it. And there's a, there's a shared moment. They, they're vulnerable because they're having to say, I don't understand. You're vulnerable because you're saying, we don't know the answer yet. And you're both having a courage moment where you're saying, let's work together to try to actually come up with an answer which is going to help your, your purpose, your vision, your brand. And that's why they've got that smile on their face, isn't it? Ah, they love it. It's fantastic. And... Whenever after the, the the workshop, after a few weeks later, we present this um, strategic platform, we finish the platform and then we're like, but I mean, we didn't do anything. We just grabbed all the pieces of truth that was embedded in the, our clients' uh, minds or research or stuff. I mean, 
Of course, we do a lot of job. We spend weeks to do that. But it's already there. But, but I, I want to go back then to the early days of Mooka where you, your payment was based on creating an artifact, a logo, mm -hmm. packaging. And it's a great challenge for many designers who have been in the artifact delivery market to then go into a post-artifact, which might be strategy, might be workshops. And, and it's interesting to hear that you're still getting that moment where you're saying, but we didn't do anything. Actually, you did a huge amount. But your, the cultural background from the training that you've had hasn't been that that was where the money was earned. Yeah, it's true. And I think we're seeing studios getting comfortable with that. It used to be always we got paid on pieces of work that were done, output production rather than the outcome, which is the clarity of the thinking, the problem solving that's taking place. And I suppose that it's really, you know, precious that you're sharing that that vulnerability, the honesty that you, you didn't think that you did something when you've actually done a huge amount. And that might be the reason why we're seeing so many consultancies actually marching into this space because they know that actually the deliverable of, of going through problems and, and sorting through the challenges that people have is a very valuable device in the economy. And then they're acquiring the design, the design studios that then have those heavily craft-based and research-based designers because they know how to sell the stuff. So your, your journey is really interesting uh, where you're actually learning how to go and create value and monetizing the innate things that you do every day of the week, which a lot of studios haven't worked that out yet. Yeah, it's, uh, it's I mean, we are putting in shape what we always have been doing without giving it a name and without building it. And But it really helps us to look at the problem in a very, very big and wide, with a wide spectrum. And then when it's time for us to do our nitty-gritty moving of the Bezier curves on Illustrator or on a font software, we, we can control the kerning of the, these two letters with a, a reason. If there's always a story behind the last detail of the design. It's not that, again, I wake up in the morning and say, oh, the letters needs to be all these clothes, they need to touch each other. Yes, they need to touch each other because it's a style from the 70s and so this is a, a brand that is inspired by the 70s. So from the story of the brand, we decide what is the outcome of the, the design. Personally, I've also seen you grow in the last five or six years from somebody who was hugely frustrated because the monetization, the challenges of the, of the business weren't there. You're much more settled now there, that there's this strategy side, working through with the clients, having that partnership side. That's been an interesting evolution, but I don't think it was particularly easy or particularly graceful as Mooka developed that way. Um, it was also because I was trying to avoid clients. <laughs> as, is that in terms of choosing which clients you wanted to work uh, with? No, avoiding. I'm terrible at confrontations. And I know that to have some successful design, you need to um, need to have some a little bit of tug of war sometimes with clients, or th maybe that was that's what was in my mind. So I I was delegating that to other people, and then I was becoming frustrated. And now I do it in first person. I was always trying to so what hide was, behind that. What was that, that turning point? Like, how did you actually put yourself into that? Because 
exactly what you've articulated there so many designers struggle with. It's they have to have the hard conversations, but they don't necessarily want to. And that, that's not what they kind of got into this for. They think people should just accept their craft and all the rest of it. So what did you do to actually say or do something that wasn't natural to you? Therapy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but besides that, uh, which I do, yes. Um, well, you're in New York. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Have I, you got uh, two therapists? That's yeah. the question. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one in, uh, in, in England. I do it online. It's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> I highly <go>. recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> They're far enough away they don't feel the, the energy immediately. Yeah. yeah. So okay. partly therapy, but what was the other thing? Um, I had a business partner, we split up, and I had to do her job. And, you know, you, you say make do in English? Yeah. yeah. And it was actually, wow, it's not that terrible to do it. And uh, it's actually fun sometimes to, to, to meet new clients sometimes. Sometimes it's like, it's not because you end up meeting someone that is like a bad date when you have a when you meet someone for the first time. If it's a good client or if, if it's a good date, there's this connection and you can end up dating for a few months because, or maybe a few years. And uh, that initial moment is always difficult because in a certain way you have to sell yourself because we have to make money mm -hmm. to support our children. Um, especially because they go to a private school <laughs> in New York. There's all these layers. Listeners, I've got to tell you, uh, uh, audio doesn't give it there, but the pain that I just see, uh, like every muscle in Mateo's body just uh, clenched for a moment. Yeah? But uh, no, come on, let's, let's get back to it. Sorry. Okay. Um, I don't even know what we are talking about. So we, we're talking about the transition of that you've had, you know, you've seen probably what your previous business partner was trying to go and shine a torch on for you. They've left. You've then had to go and do some of these things. And you've come so, out yeah. the backside of that with in a much better way. I had way. to go and kill all my fears, which are still there, but, I mean, put them very, very, like, under the rug whenever I'm dealing with new people um, or new clients. And... Uh, and then it gives me even more um, power whenever we design internally and outside because I'm, I know intimately what the client wants because I'm there selling it and I'm with the designers doing things. While before I was trying just to do and have someone else selling it. And so it, I think there's what was interesting there too in that when you were talking this through was you were saying that a client or meeting with a client can be like a good or bad date, right? And obviously there's certain things you can set yourself up to have a good date, like maybe shower and be presentable and all the rest of it. It's been known to work, yeah. <laughs> Doing so that what's that word? <laughs> In English? <laughs> but I think it's, it's also what are the things you're looking – what are the cues you're looking to hear from for a client – on that they are going to be a good date. Like what is the language and things? Because this is what we're kind of wanting to share with listeners and wanting to share with senior level executives that this is the language that people should be speaking about. Okay. The first thing is we try to do a background check because we want to get paid. Right. 
No, we don't do no, that. No, but, actually, but, that's in, but in theory, we should do it because we had a couple of clients that forgot some of their bills. And, that, and, that, and they're often the nicest people, but they just forget the bills. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yes, especially when you work in, a, in the restaurant world. If they haven't paid you the moment that they opened the restaurant, the restaurant that is six months late with the opening, their cash is like going down, 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 down. And if you give them your files, they have the files. But the thing that they want after the, when they open the restaurant, then it's food yeah. or and when, so they pay the, the provider, the yeah. food the provider first, and me, I'm like in the back uh, of their so, mind. So the most, so I think what's really interesting about this discussion that we're having is a hugely successful amongst peers, you know, deep crafted designer that didn't have the the business skills and has had to learn them not learn them through a structured process. It's been a, a, a stumbling that you've had in that learning process. You knew that there was an answer out there that would actually give you, say, more comfort and more success financially. And in the process of stumbling through that, you've found that success, but, it, gee, it's a hard path if everybody has to go through that the way that you've had to. And you're not you're not an alone designer who's actually struggled to work out how do I go how do I make money how do I go and actually deal with clients, and it almost sounds like there needs to be some bridging education for designers to understand how to how to actually speak the language of business, and that's where you know in the conversations that we had with Debbie Millman we were talking about the idea that there's people who actually don't understand that language of business and therefore they want to have the seat in the boardroom. But what would they do if they got there? Because they don't know how to conduct themselves and, and talk in the way that business is thinking. You've gone through that. It's had great returns for you. You've been able to go and actually um, have more peace in the work that you're doing, more financial success. I think that's probably the, the biggest outtake from this conversation is that you're not a sole example of where that trouble has been there and how do we actually begin to do that? Is that something like an AIGA that, that should be doing some bridging there or in your case the Type Directors Club? How do people actually get this knowledge because it's necessary, we will need people who now to speak the language of, of business but also come with the skills and the, and the craft culture that's there? I think schools, the design, the design schools should have a big part for business, I don't know if they have it. Maybe they have it. Um, I don't. Uh, I never went to a school in the states, nor in Italy, actually, to be honest. Uh, but definitely, that would be awesome. The truth is, how many designers that are coming out from a design school are going to go solo? Not that many. So maybe that's why those schools are more interested in teaching the craft. But isn't it interesting, right? Like to survive in organisations now. You need that language as well. Absolutely. So it's kind of even if they go solo or even this is where universities need to realise that for design to survive and flourish in organisations or individually or agencies, they need to give these designers that language to communicate with business people who fund that design. Oh, yes. that's You need to be able to talk their language. Otherwise, they're like just a designer, you know, do some pretty things for us. 
So obviously being a design leader, people, you've got people who you work with and um, people that you're obviously taking on this journey with you and they're looking to you for inspiration. Okay. So who do you look to for inspiration in leadership or in design? Sometimes it could be musicians, could be actors, could be designers, could be writers, it could be friends. I have friends who are lawyers, but you know, they do very interesting, they use, they, they think about business in a way that I would never ever, ever think about it. So that's very illuminating. And, and in terms of thinking about, you know, you're obviously incredibly creative, having to push boundaries all the time. How do you continually innovate and kind of reinvent what you're doing to stay fresh and, ex- and at that edge? By hiring, hiring young people because I'm getting really old, very bleep old. And uh, I think uh, I need to learn from other, from other people. I have a bunch of incredible designers in my office. I'm learning every day. And of course, I try to stifle their creativity by pretending that I'm the boss. Say, oh, that sucks. And I'm like, fuck, they're so good. And I have to pretend that their work is terrible. Yes. (laughs) But no, no, it's actually, I've really, I have people that are in my office, everyone in my office, they're like incredible. And I'm so glad every day that that I go to a design review with them. I'm like, oh, did they do it so fast? So I think the difficult thing is to let other people do what they're doing best. I don't know if I'm... Yes, I think that's the best way to do it. Matteo, this has been so precious. The, the time that you've given us, the honesty that's there, and hopefully that people can actually get some outtakes there of whether it's personally working out how to go build up their language of, of business if they're designers, and also for people who are commissioning designers, maybe it's actually being aware that there's a little bit of bridging there that you have to manage down to go get the amazing craft work out. I feel so privileged to have had half an hour having a chat to you. It was my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to the Design Executive Club podcast. If you'd like to listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast software. Make sure you like us, make sure you share the news and uh, by being subscribed, you'll find out when our next episode comes. So thank you for listening and we look forward to bringing you more episodes very soon.